Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee. This is my show. We're back for a second series. Uh, now, we had an event, in case you didn't hear me talking about it previously, called Squeefest 2020. It was the second time we've done one of these such events. Previously, it was an audio. We did a video thing this time. I went for 24 hours, just me on the screen, uh, not just me, but it was me on the screen for the 24 hours, and I was joined by different guests to record episodes of the Dr. Squeeze Show, and we had a couple of panels, which are also going to come up in the podcast over the next um, so many weeks, and I had different podcasts coming on to keep me company. It was a wonderful time. We raised £550 for the NHS. And that's a wonderful achievement. I'd like to thank all the listeners of this podcast and anyone else who tuned in. It was amazing. Uh, you can still donate now, if you uh, so wish, at justgiving.com slash squeefest, S-Q-U-E-E-F-E-S-T. And anything is really greatly uh, received. Even if you can donate a pound, it's a pound more in the coffers helping fight COVID-19. And uh, we had a wonderful time. It was a success on every level. We had so many people tuning in. Uh, I had a great time talking to all the guests. And originally the idea was I might take a week off afterwards just to recover from the event. This is uh, about three weeks later now. I'm finally getting around to posting the first of the new episodes. Um, obviously, with the podcast, seasons are very much arbitrary or series. Like It's really an ongoing thing. But just because I had that little break in between... And it also delineates that this this next bunch of episodes are going to be from Squeefest. So uh, we've got a great load of guests coming up. And as well as those other thank yous, I'd like to say a specific thank you to StreamYard. This is the wonderful technology we at the Dr. Squee Show use every week to host our podcast when we record it on video. Uh, for the event Squeefest, they very kindly sponsored us and allowed us to use their premium version which allowed us to do things like I uh, had a couple of times some musical performances so I could take myself off screen and just have uh, me hosting the call with the person who's in the other end of the uh, video call on the screen alone. It allowed me to do things like playing our theme tune with a video to it, which I uh, put together. I had so many like different features I could use. The thing I love about StreamYard the most is that it's so plug and play and user friendly. I was recommended so many other different uh, types of ways of streaming in the past and none of them, you know, were, were easy to use as StreamYard is. And it's just really effective. The paid for version is well worth it. We will be using that in the future. Uh, but how lovely of them to sponsor us for Squeefest. So they are going to be our sponsor for all these episodes coming up uh, from Squeefest. So please do use them. Uh, and if you want your streams to look professional and wonderful you want to upload your logo into the corner you want to do all this wonderful stuff use the pay for version it's well worth it uh, if not though in the meantime try the free one see how you like that and uh, then you're going to see how much more you'll get out of the pay for version and how wonderfully plug and play and user friendly uh, StreamYard is but today we're going to start off with katie manning she was my first guest on squeefest I was on fresh legs, uh, but I had been spending so much time preparing everything for the event. I think I come through maybe at times a little bit flustered. This probably isn't my best uh, best performance as an interviewer, I will say. I think Katie was wonderful. Uh, I still had some good questions for her. I will give myself credit for that. 
I can just hear a little fluster in my voice because it's just such a whirlwind when you're trying to line up 24 different programs in a row which you're going to be hosting it's a it's a task um I'm only now just kind of sort of recover from it your voice really takes a hit after such a thing because you're just talking for 24 hours and and with all the kind of uh, games which we had over those 24 hours and all the interviews I had to do it wears on your voice and your mind it was quite a thing like you know by the end of the 24 hours I was really uh, just just slightly out of it, really, if I'm honest with you. It was kind of like a sort of slightly spacey feeling. I think I got a bit of a second wind near, second wind near the end. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just so pleased with the event. And, and I just want to thank everyone involved and everyone who supported and donated. And, you know, I do understand, you know, I said it throughout this event. Obviously, there's a lot of people hurting both financially and mentally as a result of everything and you know physically obviously we, we've lost people to COVID-19 but I understand people are, are hurting financially so if uh, people aren't able to donate and weren't able to donate obviously this is meant to be entertainment for people as well you know we get that not everyone's going to be that affluent at a time when uh, jobs are going out the window businesses are going under this is a tough time for a lot of people so you know we only ask you to donate if you can afford to donate if not please enjoy this and may it lift your spirits and make you feel a bit better. And I can't think of anyone who would make me feel better than Katie Manning. She is such a lovely, bright and bubbly person. Uh, she takes any challenge in her stride. She just had a kind of like an eye infection, which we talk about here uh, near the beginning of the interview. And uh, it, it's the good people of the NHS. Well, yeah, once again, they're there to help her out which was wonderful uh but but like everything she does uh whether it's kind of greeting fans wherever she meets them giving up her time for events like this or just her wonderful acting everything about her is just so lovely and and she's an activist as well you know you'll hear in this that uh, as well as her character of joe grant slash joe jones in doctor who She's also, you know, she, her, she is an activist as well as her character is an activist. And um, both kind of character and person I'm in awe of for, for their steadfastness at trying to make a difference in this world and make it a little bit better. And that's what Squeefest was all about. And uh, that's what the show's meant to be all about, you know. Uh, someone said, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. And, and I try and carry that forward with me. And man, does Katie Manning do the same. Uh, what a just fascinating and wonderful person. We barely scratched the surface, but without further ado, let's hand over to the first interview of Series 2 of the Dr. Squee Show and uh, the first interview which I did for Squeefest. This is the wonderful, amazing Katie Manning. Katie Manning is now joining us. I will now add her to the stream. Hello, Katie. Hello, how are you? I'm not so bad, but but this is the first show, so you know, ask me another twenty three hours and <laughs> forty two cups of coffee later. I want to see how you are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Katie, we're just going to quickly play my theme tune, and then we'll get chatting. Okay? You got it. Welcome to the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Doctor Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, but we love to hear you listen. You are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing, so welcome to the Dr. Squish Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squish Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squish Show. Hello, up. Here we go. 
Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Tonight, Squee welcomes... Squee welcomes... Katie Manning. Hello. And now here's the man himself, Dr. Squee. Hello, Katie. How are you today? I'm really well, darling. And as I gather, this is just your... Your very first part, as I say, I want to see what you're like after 42 cups of coffee and 24 hours. Yeah, there's a few people who are coming on later in the event who are taking great delight in uh, the idea of seeing me as a little puddle on the floor. So I'd hate to disappoint them. <laughs> I Listen, I, I've done 24 hour things before now. And yes, the puddle on the floor is it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll come will you up and put you in a bucket, darling. <laughs> well, Katie, I know you do a lot of wonderful work for charity, so thank you for joining us for this and uh, for giving some more of your time. I know you're tremendously generous with all your causes. Well, you know, I mean, we, we have to do, uh, there are a lot of things that, I'll just give you this quickly and then I promise you I won't play eco-granny anymore. But, you know, there are so many injustices and causes that we need to help and support in this world. And fortunately there are people that are able and willing to do that but what we keep dismissing is the most important thing in my mind in terms of not lack of care for people and animals and everything but if we don't have a planet a functioning planet you know for which we have been given this incredible gift and we've spent yeah. a lot of our lives destroying it i mean you know my son was um what back in 1980 something they're 42 now made a, a, a video about pollution of the sea um i was dealing with things like this in the late 60s and we were just called nutty hippies you know um and you know my my, my poor kid at school said oh your mother's just one of those tree hugging hippies you know um but it, that's not the case and we know that governments we know that everybody is well aware of the problems hugely yeah. aware and they're levels because you know we are going in invading these we're deforesting and we're taking away jungles which are little ecosystems which were always going to be left alone and out of that unfortunately is going to become disease and things end up like pandemics we don't realize well we do but that you know we can do as much as we can but we have to have to hope and keep pushing for governments globally um even though there are some governments who have leaders who are in denial i'll say no more than that um yes. that we have these problems but you know this is our gift this is where we live this is what has given us life and breath and everything else and every single creature on this planet is here for a reason and it's up to us now to really start taking some action and stop dismissing it and always finding something else to put in front of it. One more thing, and then I promise I'll shut up. Um, no, please. The thing is that there is, we know now how multinational companies can make the changes without losing their very important finance. You know, because we can't deny money is an important thing. But there yeah. are all these alternatives and not nearly enough is being done. And as individuals, we have to do every little thing we can. All right, I'll be quiet now. <laughs> no, I think it all. I think it all links back actually perfectly to our theme of uh, just just giving dot com slash squeefest to donate to the NHS because I think it's the same thing. I think it's uh, 
over the years, like these things get defunded. We do more to kind of destroy our rainforest to make people thicker through this. And the NHS, which is there to pick it up, gets underfunded as well. So we cause the problem and then we don't fund the solution. It's all like, you know, all these little skittles being knocked over all along the way. And if you look how when we went into you know, Australia with the Aboriginals or, you know, the America, we went into, you know, with Indians and we took in diseases that were not much to us, but they wiped out entire tribes, you know, and what we're looking at, you know, these things and the national health is left to take care of us all. And I, I have supported the national health all my life. They are, you know, it's one of the things that put the great in Great Britain. Um, my father was a huge supporter of the national health. It's one of the greatest things ever. Um, and it's up to us also to make sure that they are looked after. Because most of us have been born. Our lives have been saved. I'm here because of the national health. Not because I was born that way, but I nearly died that way, if you see what I mean. And it yeah. was through their care. My children are still alive today because of the national health. Um, and, you know, it is the greatest institution and the passion and the care um, and the commitment that they put in during the pandemic. And as I say, we're, we're way not over that and there will be more things that we're going to have to deal with. So we need to look after them. We need to take care of them and do everything we can for them. Because, as I say, they put their lives on their line, on the line for us. Bravo. Right. Um, uh, something which actually I can uh, get onto about you recently. Uh, you you actually had a problem with your eye uh, recently, and you you turned to the NHS. I was worried for a while we might lose you because you had the eye patch and the mouth guard. You know, it's like we, we had little Katie left to see. I have no idea what was going on in the world because you know I have one eye. I I don't see very well anyway, so I could only wear a lens, which I've only got one in this eye, but you know the other eye. Um, in one eye I couldn't even wear that for about four weeks so I couldn't see anything and I was in a dark room but you know as I say I had a very serious car accident which put me into hospital for nearly two years I've had you know my face completely reconstructed on one side they saved my life I had embolisms I had bits of metal pushing me absolutely amazing when I was 16 and then, you know, with this, right during all that, you know, just at the end of sort of when we were kind of getting out more, I got this very, very rare eye thing, which is called a carthamoeba. And it's these amoebas that get into your eye and they are so rare, they're still kind of doing research on it. Um, and it is one of the most excruciatingly painful things I've ever experienced. I think I'd rather break both my arms again. Um, and so consequently, you know, uh, they've eaten a little bit of my sight, but because I haven't ever had much sight, um, it doesn't bother me as much as it would somebody. Who, but do you know, they were, bang, they were on it straight away. They said, look, we don't want to believe it's this, but we think it is. They sent me off to a special place where they've only got one machine that can detect. They, they were just amazing. And they never left me waiting for one second. I can't, I mean, that was the, the Western um, Eye Hospital and Moorfields. I mean, they were just so lovely and they could see that I was in such pain and they put me in a little dark room and oh, they were just amazing. I applaud them every single day of my life. I don't just do it once a week. Yeah. And uh, just a story from the floor. We've had uh, Christopher Sleep right in. I'm here because the doctors never gave, gave up on me, even though I was told I may never walk or talk. Uh, and I've actually had a friend just recently who um, has sadly lost his sight in one eye 
but he's had such great care. And I just want to give a shout out to my friend Gaz. Uh, I know he's still recovering at the moment, still kind of dealing with the news. So I just want to send some love his way. Um, Absolutely but too. And just remember, you know, everything that seems so terrible at time, we come through. You know, we and 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 you are all doing so well, and just you know, keep being positive. I was told I'd never walk again. Hello, I've been climbing mountains in high heels, <laughs> gale forces. You know, it's you, your determination, and as I say, all the love and the care that you're getting from National Health. And I wish you all huge, pink, fluffy clouds bursting with healing hugs. Oh, you're wonderful, Katie. I'm going to get teared up already. We're only like 20 minutes I, in. I was thinking, those I'm thinking you know, I, want, I want to hug you all and make you feel better. Um, but let's get on to you. Uh, so you mentioned Australia there. I didn't realise you are half Australian. I'm not. Oh, on your website it says you're um, Australian. Think, no, 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 it doesn't say I'm half Australian. Oh, sorry, I may have been missed. Sorry, not your website. It must have been misled. It had one when I looked you up. I have an Australian passport. I lived there for many years. Ah, um, maybe my children were so ill um, that after a while it was deemed that maybe a warmer climate might help. Well, I figured I was asked to go if I wanted to go to America to stay with the girls. I said, no. Um, I, 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 I knew one person in Australia. I packed two suitcases. I took two sick children. It took a long time for them to recover and operations and all sorts of things. Uh, Australia was very kind to me and I had to work as a single mother. So I got a career and friends. And in fact, my children are over there right now. My twins are both there. My granddaughter's there. Um, but also I have American as well. You see, I'm a little bit of everything. I think we all come from the world. I can't be doing all this country bit. Oh, I come from here's my flag. This is our planet, this is our home, and we all belong on it. We should jolly well get on together. I'm fed up with all these barriers and differences. You know, we can all have different thoughts, but surely, surely, we don't. I keep wanting to call you Dr. Squee, and it doesn't feel right. Um, Squee, please call me Squee. <laughs> get you Squee. <laughs> you know, that I, I don't understand why we can't have our own different separate beliefs, but why do we have to force them? If you really believe something, you don't need anybody else to believe it with you. And, you know, so we can all be individuals, but we all need to realize we have one thing in common. We're all human beings and we all rely on this planet just to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it goes back to what you're saying about kind of uh, action on climate change and action on our environment. Like, until we can actually come together uh, as a world, like, we, we will not get any forward momentum, really. Nope, because everybody always wants something else, don't they? It's like, you know, with the wonderful national health. We praise it, we laud it. But you'll always get certain people saying, oh, well, I went in there and I had to wait 25 minutes and I hurt my thumb. You know, I'm sorry, that sounded horrible as if I was being very beastly, but, you know, we have to look at the bigger picture. It's not just about us individually. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we, we, <laughs> um, and, and so therefore I, I, I get very upset when people make complaints about the great national health in any institution, especially when, you know, something like this is concerned, there are going to be things that happen but they're put under a microscope. The greatness of the national health really should have been with us before COVID. We should, people started to say, oh really, aren't they amazing? Well, they were amazing way before COVID, you know? Yeah. And 
even more so during. Yep, completely agree. Uh, let's again, let's get back to you though, Katie. <laughs> Move on. Pop. I don't want to. <laughs> no, this is lovely. I, I, I could talk to you um, about the environment for an hour easy. But, uh, but we're going to talk about you, madam. So uh, your father was a writer and an OBE. He was. I'm sitting right next to his OBE now. It's about the only thing because I get rid of everything when I move. And it's about just, just a few things I keep. And that's one of them. Um, because sadly, he died um, just a few months after he got it. He was he championed back in the um, in the sort of late 50s. My father was championing women in the workplace, wanting to have crashes in factories so that women could go back to work if they had children. Um, he uh, changed the rules of boxing so that there was a doctor at the side of the ring to say when it was, you know, no longer a sport and it was, you know, because there's a lot of damage that can be done um, to the brain in boxing. Um, he also um, championed the miners during their big problems and was carried down the streets of Wales by the Welsh miners. Um, he was always, when he was chairman of the press club, he opened the doors to women journalists instead of all this closed door for men. Um, yeah. He also was um, fought against apartheid in sport um, and went to South Africa. He, he, was, a, he was a kind of a, a writer of wrongs, if you know what I mean. He always found a cause and went out and, and championed it one way or another. He also fought against... Um, the terraces at football after, you know, before the big collapse, he was saying these terraces have to be changed. And he also was talking about drugs in sports back in the 1960s and said, this will happen. So I grew up with all this around me, which wasn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, like I can tell kind of you've got a lot from your father. So obviously your uh, want for activism and for change, but I also kind of... <laughs> My father had the eyebrows you've ever seen in your life. I mean, they were like eye shades. Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> that's okay, that's lovely. Um, so uh, what was it kind of like, because he was writing, did that help inspire you to go into kind of showbiz, into that kind of world? No, um, I, I don't know. Nobody, I don't know what inspired me. I don't think, you know, I didn't walk around as a young girl. I, I was too busy kind of, dealing with being a little strange because they didn't know that I couldn't see until I was about five. Um, so I lived in this really very withdrawn little world and, you know, kids work very close. So back then, nobody really noticed. They just thought I was a weird kid, you know, and um, it, it sort of, I know that daddy encouraged me. He was great at telling stories. He was away a lot. Um, I spent a lot of my time with a nanny looking after me and my older sister um so i grew up very very much a little lone child um but i was very very creative in my little head and didn't realize that all the characters i was always another character and i was always even you know like playtime for me was adopting a character and yeah. that character you know um, everything from, you know, <laughs> dentists to mad teachers who had furry ears that went up to the sky. And when life got really difficult, I used to climb to the top of my ears. Um, I know, weird child. That's brilliant. Um, and I, so, and I was somehow, because I couldn't see very well, I made up for it with voices because what you can't, but because I could hear so clearly. 
so every voice I heard on the radio, I would be trying to do. I mean, my father said it was really spooky to have, you know, some of the voices, especially Popeye, you know, <laughs> listening to this little tiny person with these great big thick glasses with this unbelievably deep voice doing Popeye. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that that was my friend. My friend were all the voices that I could create. and. Daddy was very good at voices too, so we used to play voices together. Um, and so I didn't actually realize what I was doing with it all. I mean, I was, I loved dancing because you didn't need to be able to see much. But then after my car accident, that was the end of my great relief to the ballet world, let me tell you, um, the end of my dancing career. <laughs> because I was probably one of the few ballerinas that used to, you know, be doing her jetés across the room and voicing them. <laughs> yeah. Commentating on some of my ballet certificates would be lovely. If any, Katie has a lovely smile. She's a beautiful dancer, but she must learn not to talk while dancing. <laughs> there was a kind of commentating on the action, and now Katie Manning going for the leap. <laughs> and of course, Daddy, uh, my grandfather, started Sports Report. It was his concept, and uh, so I grew up hanging around the BBC radio studios as well waiting for daddy quite often at three o'clock in the morning in my nighty in the back of the car <laughs> um magical childhood all around me and we had and then of course i went to school and you know i you possibly know i went to a private tutorial school i left proper school at like 11 and i went yeah. to private tutorial school miss dixon miss wolf where i met somebody who had a very, very famous mother. So I was also then caught up in a very um, American um, movie world. Wow. Um, we had sportsmen around me all my life, you know, cricket teams coming to our house and big, huge parties. I mean, like most of my life, my parents loved partying. Um, and so then, it, so it sort of was all around me. And it wasn't till years later that my friend Liza and, and her mama and, you know, my they said, you know, Katie has this extraordinary talent. She has got to do something with it. But I didn't recognize it as, oh, yeah, I'm going to be an actress until yeah. I went to the States after my car accident to see my sister, who was a model with Eileen Ford. She's five foot 11. I'm five foot one. Hello. Thanks, parents. Um, <laughs> and um, I was offered a contract with MGM for five years and they flew my parents out and daddy said, well, if you do it, you could do five years and do nothing, you know, rah, 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 rah. And I came back and I didn't tell anybody and I decided to audition for drama school. Um, and I thought, well, whoever takes me first gets me. And that's what yeah. I did. Yeah. Decision, I am going to be an actress. It just kind of happened organically. And then kind of tell us about some of the earlier productions you were in then. I, I take it was kind of theatre work to begin with? No, no, everybody no? thinks this. No, I started in television. You go straight to TV. So it was, uh, was it Man on Top? I did it the other way around. You know, you're always hearing, you know, most of the actors that I absolutely admire and love, you know, from especially from the older days, all cut their teeth on some weekly rep and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And I did Softly Softly. And then I did, uh, I got a tiny part, like six lines, because one of the things I could do, 
even though I left proper school at 11, my, I could speak French. And it was a part of a French au pair girl in Man at the Top with Kenneth Haig, written by John Brain, who was like the groundbreaking writer of that time, you know, very different kind of television. Um, and so I got the part of the French au pair girl and I'd only been doing it for about, I don't know, four or five days rehearsals. And they took me out and gave me the juve lead in, in an episode written especially for me and then another one. And it was during that time I, I kept, went in late to go to Doctor Who. They would, they'd already shortlisted it to three, but Terence and Barry said, no, there's one person we haven't seen and we really need to see her before we make up our mind. Thank goodness they did. Um, because I was doing this other television series. And I did do one play. I went up to, gosh, was it Wolverhampton? And I did a week's performance playing a seven-year-old in Jane Eyre. Yeah. I know. And I had to do a little ballet dance and speak French again. And she was seven. I'm playing seven at 19. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right in saying, like, because I, I know with other TV shows, uh, like there was a lot of things at the time whereby they wouldn't ask you to do another show if you were doing one. Like, was so was that a rare thing, kind of to be invited to do Doctor no, when you doing another show? doing a very serious one for, for commercial television. Uh, and this was BBC. There was no, you know, I was doing the other one, but I would have been finished in time. It wasn't like a soapy or anything. It was um, time. But I didn't start my, th and then I carried on in television after. I did um, Target, where I played a junkie, directed by Douglas Canfield. Yep. <laughs> I played the first um, in a true court case lesbian on television and it was a true court case who would get cussed and that was directed by Douglas Canfield so he never directed me in Doctor Who but he certainly <laughs> made up for it very and I so my theatre didn't come till I was doing serendipity which was a Sunday afternoon arts and crafts program and during at night I was playing a um, 16 year old mass murderous girl guide. <laughs> that, that's I, quite a. Uh, were you typecast? Uh, well, no, because I was actually teaching people how to work with epoxy resin, how to polish semi precious stones during the day. And then at night, I'm a mass murderess in knee socks, bunches, and I'm walking around just quietly and very sweetly. Her name was Rosie Macron with big bunches. Just killing people. <laughs> oh, <laughs> natural thing in the world. So, I mean, how was the presenting? So, yeah, that, that was uh, presenting in Serendipity, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. How was that for you? Fascinating, except when they gave me the, the wind-up scene, and it was all improvised. There was no scripts. So I would go in and they said, oh, right, this week we're working with... Um, you know, um, we're weaving. Next week we're doing, uh, we're doing metal work, you know, so on and so on. And I was always, I do do a lot of these sort of things, but a lot of those I didn't do. So you go in and you have the expert and they were, oh, tie-dyeing, that was another good one. Um, and you have all these experts who were lovely, but um, not very animated. So yeah. with no disrespect, they would be, absolutely brilliantly knowledgeable about their subjects 
but they would be very like staccato and then you take your epoxy resin and you put and i'm kind of you know jazzing it up and then at the end they give you the wind up signal right well yeah. with my eyesight i did put my glasses on for some things but they're so thick you know they and <laughs> And I would often misread the signal. So I'd start to do the wind up and then I'd notice they're going, no, no. So I'd suddenly say, however, we will be here. And I'd have to, so it was all improvised. Um, and I think there was 13 episodes I did. And it was yeah. teaching people how to sculpt, you know, out of pieces of the early stages of taking like a, a dry, stale hovis loaf and carving into it so that people could, and, because to me, anything that you make or create or paint is art. You know, don't compare it with anybody else's. Like people say, oh, no, I can't paint because I can't paint like Rembrandt. Well, no, Rembrandt painted like Rembrandt. You paint like you paint. Um, yeah. And I think more people should, should, and I think they did during lockdown, actually start saying, well, I'm just going to have a go. And that's all it is. Just have a go. Yeah. Um, if we can get back to the doctor of it, uh, so you you go for the audition. Oh gosh, what's that process like, and how did you phone Joe Grant as a character when you first kind of saw the scripts? Oh, listen, it, it, everybody thinks it was. It, I'm sure people have wonderful stories, a lot more organised than mine. I turned up really late, couldn't find where they were, got frightfully lost, had the most awful cough. It sounded like you know, kennel cough. And I, you know, because my glasses are so thick, people need to look at your eyes. And so I always would take them off and then of course didn't know where I was going. So I arrived late, Terence Sticks used to tell the story. And I walked in, I had all the rings and the thing and and uh, they shortlisted it to three and they'd all auditioned with Richard Franklin. And Richard Franklin, bless him, tells the story. He said, oh, yeah, 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 I auditioned with Katie Martin. I auditioned alone because they, you know, there was a there was an amount of time where they just wanted to see me and that was the time I was free. Yeah. So they very patiently waited for me. <laughs> and then get a call from one of the security people at the BBC saying, we have a lost person here. <laughs> Does anybody want to claim her? <laughs> Anyway, so they said to me, could you read the script? Well, I was too embarrassed to show them my big, thick glasses. So I kind of got the script and I put it under my nose. And they said, uh, could we? And I said, well, no, it's a bit hard, you know. So they said, well, would you do an improvisation instead? So I wasn't, I hadn't read a script. I had no idea what they wanted. And so they said, they sent me into this big rehearsal room and there was a, a coach stand. And they and it had a um, I had to imagine that on the the imaginary coat stand. I mean, you need all this for Doctor Who, so it was probably a better audition than me reading. And I had to imagine there was a big furry hat, and the big furry hat had to turn into a devil, and I had to react to the fact that it was turning into this devil. And then, of course, it goes back into my character seeing it that it's actually only a hat, and her reaction to you know, the mistake that she made, that it really wasn't a devil at all, it was just a furry hat. Yep. That was how I got the part of Joe Grant. <laughs> <laughs> That's so BBC as well, acting against a coat stand, I love it. <laughs> I love it, you know, I mean, it, it, it's also, it was a completely audition, different audition than most people usually have. 
Yeah. yeah. And I got Very a phone call the next day saying, would you like to play Joe Grant? So it was like overnight. It's wonderful. It strikes me that like a lot of your kind of traits seem to gel a lot with Joe Grant. Was there any kind of like, uh, was there any kind of taking from your life as the kind of role went on or was it just a coincidence that she was so like you? Well, I, do you know, it must have been a coincidence because I didn't see anything until basically I got the filming script because you do the filming first. And this was going to be the first time that I met John, the first time that I met Roger, who, of course, and then all the changes that were being made as I came in, you know, so many changes being made, um, you know, proper uniforms for army and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the master, uh, they introduced Richard Franklin and Barry Letts had fought very hard and got a little bigger budget to work on special effects because, you know, we didn't have computers or anything like that in those days. So it was a huge team of very committed, very determined people who'd stay up all night just to get something right. And so I saw the, the filming script. So basically, I found out later that they were so amazed that I was kind of everything that they sort of wanted. The only thing that we took back a bit on was there was a lot written about her being a part of unit well as i think anybody who's watched me realizes she wasn't really you no. know she'd done like a year she, she got in because of her uncle she'd done like a year and she'd chosen to do escapology and really beautifully useless things um she you know and because she says in her very first run which i think is lovely she said he said, you know, I thought you said you took A-level science and Joe, and I think you get her straight away. And she just turned around and she said, I didn't say I passed. <laughs> and so, you know, I think you get like the, so she was very young, she was 19. And I think what they did was when they met me, they saw an awful lot of what they wanted out of this yeah. particular casting for the particular reasons they chose, you know. Um, they didn't want at that time, and, and nor did John Pertwee, to have somebody who was, it, they'd had a lovely time because obviously Caroline was brilliant, but they wanted to see what it would be like if they just had an ordinary, regular girl of the moment who was gutsy, uh, which she was. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody up to that point had offered their life for the doctors, but Joe did. Yeah. And she was, so she was, she was feisty, she was brave, she was clumsy, she was funny, she was so disobedient. She had a lot of, and you watched her grow up right through the time that, you know, I was there. It was a wonderful character play. And with all the rings that I had, they decided they wanted me to keep those as part of the character. So they brought in things like that. But I also had to change my voice because my voice was a little bit, um, John used to call me the the little lorry driver. Because I, I, <laughs> I had a, a, quite a deep voice, so I, I lifted it because it wasn't fashionable then really to have a very deep voice unless you were, you know, some marvellous sort of, you know, vanilla feeling. In which case, but I don't think that would have worked for Joe. <laughs> no, no. Very grateful, and and it was an incredible team. And I say this 
because so many people talk about the past and, and so on and so forth for women in this business. There wasn't one moment where I was ever treated in any other way but as an equal, right through. Yeah, I think I that's really important. Everybody let me go everywhere. I was involved in all the conversations, all the decisions, John and I, if we felt something wasn't quite right, and Terence loved it when we found something in the script that we thought wasn't quite right, that we'd all have this big, massive meeting. I was always part of that. And John said, well, Katie and I thought we could maybe make this happen instead of her doing that. We could get escape this way as opposed to that way. <laughs> I said, yeah, just give me a teaspoon. I'll be out of here. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a, I think that's a reference to one of the episodes where I decided I could dig my way out of prison with a spoon. Yeah. But you know, so I do feel uh, very grateful for that. And it was incredible team of actors um and we socialized together you know and i went on holiday with john and his wife me and my boyfriend you know um it, it was a very very strong group because you only do that if you really get on well yes if you yes, definitely. I, think, I think you've hit upon something which is very baked into doctor who it's the fact that straight away like just by the dint of how it's set up is you have got a strong female character because the doctor has a companion and it's usually a, a woman a like or at least a woman is in the mix and and it always had that kind of hard baked into it and now of course the doctor can be a woman as well but like it just straight from the get-go strong women were, were a part of the makeup i feel of doctor well hey when everybody was saying about this we have to to look at the fact that right through all the different companions um yes we had jamie we've had male companions too but there yeah. was always at some in every one, there was a woman, and they were strong women, or they wouldn't have been doing what they were doing. Um, so, you know, I do think that for, you know, without getting too heavily into this, there have always been women very much tied up with Doctor Who since right through the beginning and through the music and special effects and so on. There were, and, and, and makeup, and because before, um, special effects took over making masks and things like that the makeups were done for the aliens by a team of uh, bbc makeup artists who were all female yeah yeah you know and so very proud of doctor on what it was like being a woman back then and i never ever felt in any way but then i guess i was lucky because i grew up with parents who made me feel very strong as a woman Sure. And uh, something which I know you do get asked about a lot. But if you just talk a bit about that kind of team and working as part of an ensemble cast in Doctor Who, which wasn't always a given, like a lot of times it was just two people and they would go to different places. So it was a different cast every week, whereas you had kind of a team in unit. Well, we had a team, but only partially, because don't forget, they weren't um, they weren't involved in, in, in everything. We weren't constantly. Yeah. It was only for the first year. And there was all sorts of reasons for this, of the Doctor being trapped on this planet. And by bringing it, because, you know, and Nick Courtney and, and John Levine, and then introducing Roger Delgado and so on and so forth, this was the team while he was trapped on Earth. But yep. if you look at the, the time overall, there were a lot of times when we were away, once he could travel, 
um, we we took off and went to other planets. And Joe went, you know, for the first time in the TARDIS and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, whilst we had that first season, we were all together. But it was very much with, you know, the actual two in the TARDIS was, was me and John. Yeah. If you see what um, but it was lovely. And also, I think if you set things on Earth, it's just a thought, this. Anything I ever say, it's not a deep opinion because opinions are, you know, should always be movable. You know, I think people need to keep very open. And especially as you get older, don't close up. Keep aware, keep open. But I think that by sometimes doing it on Earth, I mean, if you're on another planet, you sort of expect, to maybe see something a little unrecognizable um, not necessarily like us um, yeah. but if you just happen to be sitting in a police car you don't expect suddenly one of the policemen to rip off his face and find you've got an auton under there no. you, you know what I mean I think it's quite scary if you think you know you're walking through the shopping center and suddenly you know, 500 Daleks are walking towards you it's a little less expected than if you're on another planet. So I do think that it, it does pay off to sometimes do things on Earth and introduce yes, yeah. things come down and are trying to take our planet or whatever, you know. Yeah, one, one of the um, most iconic early images was the Daleks going across London Bridge and that was just <laughs> seen as so scary for it to bring the fear to Earth. I mean, in the terror of the Autons, I mean, oh, gosh, if I'd been a child, I wouldn't have been behind the sofa, I'd have been under it. I mean, there was a plastic chair because PVC, please, I'm so sorry, universe, was around. And, you know, watching Harry Taub being eaten by a black plastic blow-up chair, uh, which were in a lot of people's houses, and those trolled things were like toys that you used to see in toy shops, only, you know, yeah. slightly more pointed um uh, and then people used to back then if they were selling a product like washing powder they would often come to the door with some little freebie like a daffodil so children in that time were actually being subjected to things that they suddenly got you know and policemen doing no you know that that was pretty scary stuff yeah um because it was very real on our planet yeah, certainly. <laughs> uh, just jumping ahead. And of course, you know, back then there wasn't, you know, we they didn't have the same ruling about people dying on screen. Yeah. You know, people got shot. <laughs> There's just a few things I do want to get to because, um, oh, this hour is passing just too quickly. But uh, I just wanted to get on to some of your theatre work. So you did appear and run for your wife with... Uh, Derek Nimmo, Bernard Cribbins, and Eric Sykes. What a cast. Amazing. I mean, I, I, my first theatre was actually three years in the West End in a play called Why Not Stay for Breakfast. And then I worked with Jeff Rawl. I did, um, and Peter Denyer. We did So Who Needs Men at the New London. Um, uh, yes, then then I did, worked with the, I learned, so, uh, Doctor in the House, Jimmy Edwards, and people like that. I was surrounded by the most amazing comedians of that era that taught me so much. You know, if you were keen, they wanted you to learn. I mean, Jimmy Edwards and 
um, there's 12 godparents the children have, you know, but Jimmy Edwards even is one of them. These were people that taught you so much about your craft and what I learned from Eric, and we all became great friends. And, you know, it, it was very exciting to be that young and learning from such great comedy people. I was just so lucky. I really, really was. And I've had great times in theatre, you know. I mean, I played educating Rita. I did at the Opera House and right across Australia for nearly three years when I was in my early 40s. And I said, I said to who, I said, because it's just a two-hander, and I said, if they ever laugh when I give my age as 27, I'll know it's over. <laughs> and, you know, and I played Elvira in, in, in Blythe's, and I've just done so much theatre work, but it all came later. Um, and I love it. But my heart belongs in television. I love television. Yeah. Watching it, I, you know, I, I wish I was doing more. I really, really love it. Oh, and then I did my play where I did it in America. I wrote it and I played 26 characters on stage and then recorded it for Big Finish. Wow, uh, 27 <laughs> characters on stage. Oh, I know, honestly, darling, I was gonna disappear at my own bottom at one point. I mean, because they're all talking to each other in conversation and situations that were happening. And I played everything from sort of, you know, Australian, um, Australian men, African men, I played old Greek men, I I played pilots, I played two-year-old children, I did babies crying, I wrote a rap song, so I had to perform a rap. I mean, it's a lot. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I'd like to bring it up to kind of like uh, some of the modern Doctor Who quickly. So uh, you appeared in Sarah Jane Adventures alongside Matt Smith. That was just a, such a fantastic episode. Russell T Davis, who gave us back Doctor Who. And yeah. one of the things that I love about Doctor Who in general is right through to Big Finish, that everybody who's doing it, Moffat, you know, they all grew up as Doctor Who fans. And that's one of the extraordinary things about Doctor Who that it inspired so many people to go, you know, the writers, everybody. So you know, when you're doing anything Who related, you're working with people who grew up and are absolutely passionate about it. And that's why it's such a special show because it is always made with that kind of love. And to go in yeah. and I did Liz and we got on really well. And it was a joy to work with Matt. I mean, what a fabulous bonkers actor. I mean, I love the fact that he said that I was as mad as a box of frogs. I said to him, have you ever seen yourself? <laughs> a beautiful young actor, a, a generous actor, was so kind and so was Liz and so was everybody. And you felt that love and the whole thing. Because I was very worried. I thought, who the hell's going to want to see a geriatric Joe? <laughs> all of us, all of us. You beautiful script it was beautifully written and it's breathed more life into joe because joe jones is quite an interesting woman um you know because she did follow the route of you know the planet and so on which is very interesting because so did i um yeah but that was wonderful and i there isn't every single doctor who and i obviously started with william hartnell every single doctor who has brought their own magic to it. And we all know it's one character, 
So they've all kept this central heart, but the other heart is what the actor brings to the performance. And I don't think there's a weak link. Yes, we're all going to have our favourites, you know, but don't get your knickers in a twist about, oh, I like him better than him. Enjoy what you enjoy. But they all have an incredible magic and they're all wonderful actors. And Jodie is no exception. And yeah. I'm glad that they didn't just keep, you know, because every time they were changing, they would say, oh, we, we, we have to have a woman. It has to be this. You get the right person for the part. And she was exactly the right actress for the part. She is just magnificent. And I, I don't know much about the old who because I was in other countries and not seeing it as much in the 80s. And I, but I am absolutely passionate from the new shows from the beginning to now. And yes, some are going to be better than others. I, you know, but I sit there and I just love it. I absolutely do. And there is one companion I don't like. Oh, and I loved it when Rose Tyler came out with obviously Christopher Eccleston's doctor. I mean, she's such a wonderful actress. Those two just, oh, it couldn't have started better. I stood up and cheered in my own home in Australia. I've been originally watching back with uh, with my uh, fiance, and and she absolutely loves uh, uh, Christopher Eccleston. Uh, he's, he's, uh, it was a wonderful reinvention of the show. It was the, exactly the right casting from both of them yeah. that, that was made to bring it back. I mean, and of course, I think she is Billy Piper. I'm, I'm a massive fan of hers. You know. Um, they're, they're all brilliant. And, and the other lovely thing is when we do conventions, when we do conventions, it's such a joy because you feel so close to all, everybody and anybody. And it doesn't matter whether you're meeting the modern ones like Alex King. We all seem to have this instant hugging love for each other. Yeah. You know, and some of the ones in the new series are so excited to meet us. I would say to them, what, you're surprised I'm still here? Um, but they're so, you know, as we are to meet them. And there is this, and it's the same with the fans. We, it's, there's a magic about Doctor Who fans. There is something that we all feel a connection to this wonderful show. It, it really has that family feeling. You know, I've so many friends I've made through this. And also being able to, listen to so many people's lives and some of the trauma that they were suffering when they found this extraordinary escape route through Doctor Who, you know, that wow. got them through several times. Anyway, just want to share that. No, no, no. When, when, you, when you told me earlier about uh, your experiences at school, a lot of it chimed in with mine and kind of creating other worlds because, you know, you didn't... Well, for me, anyway, it was because I felt out of kilter with the one I was in. And uh, Doctor Who was so helpful to that. It felt like I had a family uh, of, of friends on the TV through Doctor Who. It's such a welcoming world. So I, I completely uh, get what you're saying there. I did want to just quickly ask you about one thing from Big Finish because we're not going to really get time to get into it. But no, you've worked you with two... Hold on a second. Oh, okay. you're so cute. Sorry, because I can't see you. I needed to just know what you look like, and you're really, really cute. Go on. Oh, thank you, madam. That's very kind of you. But uh, I just wanted to ask you about uh, working with John Barrowman and Torchwood and the audios for Big Finish. Oh, I love that man. <laughs> 
I, I, I've worked with somebody else very important, but I'm not allowed to say at the moment because it's not coming out yet. Having worked with several of the doctors, either as Iris Wildtime, Joe Grant, or Joe Jones, worked with the new unit team, etc., etc. Working with John, I'd actually worked with Barrowman before. I played a, I don't know whether you know this, but I played a character called Mother Nothing who was like a great big cockroach and she ate all her own children and everybody on her planet so she was looking to take over another planet mm -hmm. <laughs> and john barrowman was asked you know what he would like to do with and he said maggots i want maggots so well maybe he said maggots but he got manning as well um <laughs> he was a joy and a privilege to work with and of course we had stuart bevan playing boss which I thought the irony was divine there. Um, yeah. But such a joy on both occasions. Such a lovely man to work with. It's a wonderful, and I, I love Torchwood. So, you know, yeah. I was a bit of a fan. But he is lovely to work with. I mean, he's funny. Like, we, it was the same when I was working with John and everything. You have a lot of laughs, but you're in a very, very serious business. And so when it comes to actually doing what you've got to do, you can be giggling and being very naughty, but bang, once, you know, once that light goes on or that mic is turned on, boom, this is business, this is serious business, until you say something really stupid and everybody giggles again. Um, but <laughs> it, it is a serious business. You do have to give it, you know, it, it, people often think that acting is just a whole bunch of fun. It's extremely hard work. You have to be extremely disciplined. I mean, you think about theatre. I was doing eight shows a week in the West End for three years. My father died 20 minutes before I went on stage one night. All sorts of things were going on in your life. You go in, you do your job, you come out, you pick up all the stuff you're dealing with and you go home and you deal with it. That takes a lot of discipline. And it's the same in the studio, you know actors working with migraines and things like that you've still got to be there you've still got to do it so yeah doesn't mean you're not having well but it is a very serious business just finally i just want to ask you i try to just get a little bit of advice just for a bit of fun to end the shows from my uh, different guests and i want to ask you about because we talked a lot about your activism and a lot about your kind of like um thirst to, to help this planet uh, what would you advise someone who wants to make a difference well one of the things i mean you know because there are lots of little things that we all know about you know we all know but one of the things that we can do i think and, and take very seriously is we found out during during the lockdown that we don't need as much as we think we need and we have to look at if we keep making the demands for things they're going to keep making them and they go so if we keep making for demands for things that incorporate plastics and incorporate this and involve you know parts of, of of forests being torn down and so on we have to remember we don't need those things the amount of wastage from food you know we we need to rethink how we eat what we eat now i'm not saying i'm a lifelong vegetarian i don't eat fish i don't eat mind you i don't eat broccoli either I, there's a lot of things i don't eat but we have to look at what we are choosing to eat is it responsibly sourced because you look at what's happening to this planet because we are over farming with cattle and and meat now we don't need this much meat 
you know, the, I won't go into it now, but there's a whole alternative to farming. We have to think about how we shop, what we're shopping for, what's it packed in. Now, I know people say, oh, I haven't got time. You know, I, I brought up children and been a single working mother. I know how busy life can be. Yeah. Uh, but you have to think very carefully about just getting and if you have a garden grow a few things enjoy it if you have children encourage them to grow it with you but i do think that for all the things we have in the house if you look around your house do you seriously need everything you have there yeah i mean just um so i think there's a huge i mean if you look at the fishing industry we overfish it's just ludicrous and people will eat a tiny bit of the little fish because how many people you know eat meat and the first thing they'll say you say i've got your nice piece of liver oh no i don't eat the liver well you know if you're going to kill animals why not eat a little bit more of them if you're going to eat them and it's you worth know, saying I mean, that it, it, people speak out against it, socialism but uh, the the meat industry is heavily subsidized yes absolutely yeah. i mean i so didn't there. get as strong this as i could have done because i am not suggesting for one second people have to be vegetarians no you don't have to be you don't have to be at all i'm not saying we all have to be vegans i believe if we if we farm the right amount of cattle you know and we can take milk and butter because these are things which are fairly normal part of it um, a lot of people having problems because we were not created to eat as much wheat as we do we also have to look at why do we need chemicals in our food to make it more interesting for us why yeah. do we need to put more packaging on to suck us into buying that product you know yeah. why we wipe our bottoms with anything but recycled paper yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Katie, I can't think of a better line to leave it on, quite frankly. Oh, yeah, oh, you're welcome back on any time, Katie. We have, we have not but scratched the surface on, on your wonderful career. I would just like to bring in some of the comments just because we've had so many wonderful comments on the board. Uh, Matthew Peck, you're such an inspiration, Katie. So say we all. And uh, there's been loads of comments just like that. There's a hello from uh, Emma Huge and loads of wonderful comments from our listeners. Sorry we didn't uh, get to any of your questions, but it's just been so packed. But here's just a sample of some of the wonderful uh, comments, Katie. Everyone's loved this hour. Thank you very much for joining us and supporting our wonderful uh, people at the NHS, justgiving.com slash squeefest. But Katie, thank you for joining us tonight. You are absolutely amazing and I, have such respect and praise for what you're doing and um, any time that i can help you or anybody else who's listening please ask i mean sometimes it takes me a while to get things but i will always do everything i can and with people like you around doing what you're doing it makes me a very very happy katie and i i you know thank you Katie, I think I speak for everyone watching. We love you to bits. Thank you for doing everything you do and keep on doing it. Goodbye, my darling. And it's lovely to meet you, Squee. <laughs> Katie, take bye, care. Bye. bye.